This is Life Worlds, the place where we explore life through other eyes and minds. Let's flip the script and discover how to orient your world around nature. I'm Alexa Permanish. Come join me as we get down and forage for fungi, stalk coyotes, draft laws for rivers, hum with beehives, sing bird language, and help beavers to dam again. Let these stories spark your reconnection to nature's multiverse. Learn how to bring ecosystems back to life, become an agent for other intelligences, and begin to see how you too are the sum of all life worlds. You're listening to the full episode of Designs for Life, Priority Threat Management with Dr. Tara Martin. Greetings all. Thank you for tuning in. I am thrilled to share with you today, Tara Martin, who I had the joy of meeting in person last summer close to Vancouver, where we kayaked out to a small Salish Sea Island and shared a delicious sunset picnic amongst a small old growth grove. Tara is a scientist, professor, and the founder of the Martin Conservation Decisions Lab at the University of British Columbia. She's also the Liber Aero Chair in Conservation at UBC. In this interview, She'll cover the basics of conservation decision science and something that's called priority threat management, which is a tool that she's pioneered, and how these approaches help to prioritize complex and often very difficult to make conservation decisions. We'll discuss her lab's work with First Nations across Canada, especially in the Fraser River estuary, and the role that art and beauty play in her work. Peppered throughout the interview are her glorious descriptions of the returning and lost eco-cultural landscapes that she has worked tirelessly to protect. As always, thank you for listening. Over to our conversation with Tara Martin. I'm so delighted to be speaking with you today. The work that you're doing is revolutionizing the way that conservation science is done in British Columbia and Australia and other parts of the world. And... I want us to get into exactly what that science is and how the approach of your lab and in general, the field of decision-making science is kind of transforming the way that conservation is done. And then I also want to get into the way that you're personally relating to nature and that kind of work and getting so close to species. And I was reading the papers that you sent me and you're in this really interesting line of work where you're trying to bring a scientific method to situations of extreme uncertainty. And a lot of conservation and, and natural protection is that. It's incredibly complex situations on the ground with many different stakeholders, infinite variables. And, you know, you have on your website turning data into decisions. And so I want to start off by talking about decision science, and then we can get into priority threat management and concrete examples. From my understanding of your papers, and I'll quote one or two things, decision science focuses on decision-making and how decisions should be made. So it actually structures our thinking and how we think about issues and how we move to action from information, which is fascinating because it actually touches on pretty much everything in life. Like how do we decide at any point in the day what we're going to drink or do or prioritize? And you had this line that says, rather than deploying complex and time-consuming analyses, better decisions begins with knowing how to think through decisions. And so I'm curious about what led you to this. 
How did you find yourself operating and, and practicing inside of this field of decision science in the first place? Yeah, thanks, Alexa. That's a great, great question. I'll back up and bring you up to how I came to this space. So when I started out as an ecologist, I really felt that being an ecologist, being a scientist, collecting data and analyzing data and discovering, you know, the impacts of different threatening processes on biodiversity, I felt that that was going to help me change the world, transform the world in in positive ways. And I was, you know, incredibly bright-eyed and enthusiastic and I did a master's and then I did my PhD and it was during my my PhD that I realized that you know perhaps just going out and collecting data and kind of documenting this train wreck in biodiversity loss wasn't going to be enough and I saw that this field of ecology that essentially you know, most of my ecologist colleagues that were interested in conservation, that's kind of what we were doing. We were documenting the impacts of the loss of old growth, the loss of native meadows, the loss of wetland systems, the loss of the Great Lakes. And we knew, you know, it was very obvious the impacts of overfishing. But what we weren't doing was finding the solutions. You know, there wasn't a lot of science that was focused on the solutions. And so that made me realize that I needed to not only understand the impact of these threats and multiple threats, impacts of climate change and impacts of herbivore hyperabundance and impacts of land use change and how do they interact. Not only do we we need to know that, it's very important but it's actually even more important to be able to translate that into actionable things that we can do to mitigate and abate those threats. And so that was my bridge into this, this uh, world of decision science, which is a very old discipline that's been employed across many, many you know, in the fields of psychology, in the fields of medicine, even fields of operations research. It's a structured way of decomposing decisions and using data to help inform decisions. And so that became kind of my passion was to make that translation, to use the data that we were collecting in a way to really inform decisions. And and that actually started to change the type of data that we were actually collecting in the first place. Oh, I really want to get to how the collection of the data even changed. It strikes me as so odd that more scientists, or maybe that more scientists are feeling the sense of, but what is my data used for and how is this leading to decision making? And okay, I can write 20 papers, but how is this affecting the real world? Do you find that in the conversations you have with your peers and your colleagues, there is that frustration within the scientific discipline and the academic discipline of like, how the hell does this translate into this kind of epically challenging moment in time? I think we, many of us scientists, are, we're naive in thinking that, of course, this is going to be useful for informing decisions because it's great science. Uh, but unless we understand that decision-making process, it might not be. It probably won't be very useful. And so I think there, there's a, a recognition now for those of us that really want to inspire transformational change, that we may need to actually change the way we're doing our science um, to make it more 
usable and to be asking the right questions in the first place. And so, you know, a big part of decision science is around decision making under uncertainty. But the question is, what uncertainty matters? You know, most of the things that we get excited about as scientists, that might not be the uncertainty that really makes the difference between choosing action A or B. You know, so we need to know what is the uncertainty that would actually lead us to making a different decision. And that's the important piece. We want to know, should I be managing um, hyperabundant deer or should I be thinking about restoring this particular type of ecosystem in this way? Or should I be focusing on some other action? That's that critical uncertainty that we need to focus on, you know, not necessarily which plant species grows in this niche versus this other niche. (laughs) Yeah. Sorry, little plant species, but you're less important than solutions to the train wreck. (laughs) Um, So I want to ground this in one of the examples I love the most from your work. And if I understand correctly, under the umbrella of decision science, there's lots of different frameworks that can be applied to make decisions. And one of those is priority threat management, which pretty much sounds like what it is, which is, okay, there's 20 different threats on this ecosystem. How the hell do we prioritize them? And buck for buck, dollar for dollar, have the most efficient intervention. So it's a cost effectiveness structure, what to do and where. Um, You've applied this across Canada, different parts of the country. And I'd love to talk about the Fraser River estuary example in the greater Vancouver area. And for those who haven't been to Vancouver, it's basically the large estuary that flows out of the city. And you applied priority threat management to endangered species and other ecosystems there. So talk about the ways that there can be extreme uncertainty, as you said, in where to act, and then very specifically how your research allowed to prioritize actions in that case study. Yeah, so the the motivation for developing the tool was really recognizing that, you know, around the world, we're not doing very good at recovering species at risk. And and part of that is because we have a process which isn't really identifying those solutions. We're creating recovery strategies that have a long laundry list of things that we should do, but there's no prioritization of those things. And given that we don't have the budget to recover every species in every place tomorrow, we are already having to prioritize. So there is a need to develop this tool that helps us identify, as you said, which actions can we take that are going to lead to the recovery of the most species for the least cost to society. So we applied this method to the Lower Fraser, which is this incredibly rich, biodiverse place on the west coast of British Columbia, a place that um, has been lived in for millennia by First Nations and is now is kind of the hub of BC's largest growing population. And it also has supports 102 species at risk of extinction, everything from southern resident killer whales to Pacific mole shrews and a vast array of incredible plants and migratory birds. And 
you know, what we found was that if we continue sort of what we call business as usual, so just making the same decisions, accepting the same types of developments that we have been accepting and undertaking for the past hundred years, if we keep doing those same things and we don't implement any additional conservation measures, most of those species are not going to be thriving and self-sustaining in 25 years' time. However, if we do implement this set of priority actions, and they range from things like green infrastructure to aquatic habitat restoration to disease control in the aquatic environment, if we implement this set of priority actions, we have a good chance of recovering all of those species. Now, that's, to me, an amazingly optimistic message for an estuary that has been so hammered by, you know, human development over the past 150 years, um, to know that we have a chance of recovery of southern resident killer whales, a chance of recovery of these incredible dinosaurs of of the rivers, these sturgeon, green and white sturgeon, five species of salmon and all of the distinct genetic populations of those salmon. I mean, that to me is really extraordinary. The price tag is, it's big. It's, a, it's going to cost, you know, nearly half a billion dollars to do that. Canadian dollars, right? We should add, which is different. Canadian dollars. <laughs> so it's a, really, it's a bargain. <laughs> and when you break that down, it is a bargain. If you look at the annual equivalent investment over 25 years, that's about 15 million Canadian a year. Or that's one beer or one cup of coffee per person living in this region per year. That is very inexpensive for what we could potentially get by making that investment. Because it's not only the species recovery that we're getting, we're also sequestering carbon. We're also creating more than 50 full-time jobs to implement all of these actions. Um, We're potentially saving a salmon fishing industry. And so the co-benefits alone, we're looking at that right now, but we predict that the co-benefits, the economic co-benefits alone, let alone all of the cultural co-benefits, that they're likely to, to outweigh the, the cost of that half billion dollar investment. I'm going to link, by the way, to your um, report and study of this in the show notes because it was such also beautifully illustrated and just such a work of art. I think what's so interesting about the priority threat management that you guys applied to the the estuary and other places is it does say, okay, we need to do these things before these other actions and maybe prioritize these species over other species. So I'm wondering as a, as a scientist and as a mother and a woman and a human who's in love with all of life, how does it feel to say, okay, well, we should maybe prioritize the raptors and the bats or the killer whales or you know, even the idea of prioritizing a species over another, how does that come up internally for you when you're making these kinds of prognoses? Yeah. And I think making decisions about what to save and where are, they're not easy decisions. And, and so what we try to do is we, we move away from prioritizing the species and think about prioritizing the actions. And so what we develop is a prospectus for investing in the actions. And the actions might say, this is the set of actions that are going to lead to the recovery of the most species for the least cost. 
And there may be some species that show up that we don't have actions that are going to recover those species. There's two things that might happen. One, it might be incredibly expensive. And two, it may be that we just actually have left it too long and there are no actions on the table at the moment that would allow for the recovery of these species in situ as opposed to a captive breeding program in a zoo or something else. So those are really, really challenging um, situations, but it's important to know what what the data is saying. It's important to understand what our likelihood of success is going to be. And it's also important to know that, okay, if most of our budget is going to be used to save these two particular species, and there's another hundred species that are not going to be saved if we invest in those two, that's a decision that we need to be able to make with our eyes open. It's also, if those are two species that we really, really care about as a society, then we can find that money, you know, but we can only find the money if we know how much we need. So this is another important part of the process is really being clear about, you know, if our business is about saving biodiversity, well, then let's use some business thinking and actually be very clear about what the costs are and what the benefits are. Because to date in conservation, we haven't really done that. We've been kind of shopping without price tags, you know, getting money to do stuff without ever really costing out what it's going to take. So so it's a new way of trying to frame these problems and to provide, you know, this prospectus for investment um, that will resonate with folks that, that know about investment. Yeah. And then I'm going to ask this next question because I know you. How do you balance the deeply caring and sensorial part of your nature? And I'm sure that this is the same for many scientists and people in your lab and otherwise doing this work. You're doing this work because you're in love with the world and you're in love with nature and these creatures. And and in a way, and, and I want to get to this after, but the data collection piece, how close that gets you to the land and observing species over time. How do you balance that sort of deeply emotional aspect with the hard, practical, numerical, well, this is the data and this is the frameworks? Do you find that you can integrate both of those in yourself as you're going around your daily work? Or do you find that sometimes they're at odds with each other? Oh, yeah. that's I, I love, Alexa, that you get under the hood. <laughs> I think fundamentally it's my it's my love and my passion for the plants and animals and the ecosystems and the processes that motivates me to sit at the computer for hours and to crunch the data and to go out and speak publicly and do all these things. I mean I I love the data crunching but I don't necessarily love sitting at a computer all the time. And, and there's many aspects of my job that I find, you know, super challenging. But I do it because I'm motivated by the stories of these plants and these ecosystems. You know, I feel a very deep connection to the places that I work and, and to the people that are also connected to these places and that have been connected to them for, for millennia. And we've talked about this phenomenon of shifting baselines, and this is a real kind of motivation of a lot of my work. Daniel Pauly, who is a 
wonderful fishery scientist at the University of British Columbia, where I work. And over 20 years ago, he coined this phrase of shifting baselines, where we alter the world, but we forget what it was like beforehand. And each subsequent generation regards this progressively poorer natural world as normal. And I see that all around us. And I feel like part of my role is to help people shift their baseline and to show people what a baseline for these different ecosystems could look like and used to look like. And so I, you know, with my own kids, you know, a son who's seven and a daughter, Silka, who's eight, and what they view today, that's their normal. But what I'm trying to show them is that there are places that are left that have a different normal and that those places are really precious and they provide a window into the past and they help us to reimagine what our future can look like. And it's, it's not to say that we can always go back to another time, but if we don't protect some of these really precious baselines that still exist, whether it's the 3% of you know, coastal rainforest that's left in British Columbia or the 5% of Gary Oak ecosystems that still remain. If we don't protect those, then we, we become lost. You know, we've, we've lost uh, so much of our past and our heritage and our future. I mean, yeah, we know ourselves only as much as we are reflected in the world back to ourselves. What's it been like for you when you've gone into those more, uh, I guess, ancient baselines of ecosystems and you've collected data in them and you've spent time collecting DNA and I don't even know what data you're collecting out there. Actually, you've got to tell me. What's it like when you're when you're out there? What does it feel like? What are you collecting? How are you collecting it? And And maybe as part of that question, is there ever a role for intuition in what you're doing in terms of that data collection? Like you're in the ecosystem and you're sensing something and you're like, oh, there's something important here. I'm so curious, like bring us into what that's like. <laughs> yeah. So let's think about these Gary Oak meadow, maritime meadow ecosystems in the Salish Sea. So these are these oak meadows, which are scattered across this island archipelago. There's around 600 islands in southern Canada and that they go down into the U.S., into the San Juans. And they've got this extraordinary Gary Oak ecosystem, which is actually where most of the plant biodiversity in all of British Columbia, in fact, in all of Canada, are in these ecosystems. So they're incredibly rich. And they historically were incredibly important ecosystems for Coast Salish First Nations. And so we've been studying and working in these ecosystems for over 20 years now. We collect everything from eDNA. We collect information on deer numbers and density. We collect information on all of the plants. Uh, We collect tree density and tree health and just about everything you can imagine. We've collected data on below ground, meso and macrofauna. So an extraordinary amount of information has been building up over this past 20 years about the state of these ecosystems and the threats to these ecosystems. And I think that the piece that I really didn't fully comprehend growing up in these ecosystems, or even when I first started studying these ecosystems, was that 
the biggest threat to these ecosystems was the loss of First Nation stewardship of these ecosystems. It wasn't the land clearing or the deer or the invasive species at all stemmed from the loss of the stewardship of Coast Salish peoples. And so Coast Salish tended these meadows as their gardens. These were their food gardens. They were nurtured and passed through the matrilineal line, and they were extraordinarily rich in biodiversity because they were tended to be that way. It didn't just evolve without humans. These are eco-cultural landscapes. And so when colonizers arrived, you know, in the 1850s in this region and First Nations were, you know, struck by disease and then forcibly removed from these areas. Uh, We lost all of those stewardship techniques for these regions, which included cultural burning, so lighting fires that kept these meadows open, kept the the Douglas firs from invading into the meadows. Um, We lost the way that the meadows were tended, weeding out the unwanted plants and keeping space for these rich food plants, things like great camas, whose bulb is, you know, the size of a small potato and is rich in carbohydrates. And once it's baked, it's, you know, it's it's the most sweet deliciousness, amazing. And there's a, an early explorer described them as being more delicious than fried bananas. <laughs> So we, we lost the hunting. We lost the hunting of herbivores, of deer, of elk, you know, which in recent times, those populations of deer have become hyperabundant 10 times their former abundance. And so they've browsed out most of those wonderful food plants. So I think the evolution in my kind of journey as an ecologist in this region is that people are part of these landscapes and have been part of these landscapes forever. And when you look around the world, there's very few landscapes where people haven't been for an exceptionally long time and aren't intimately tied with the evolution of those places, the evolution of the plants and the animals of those places. And so when I reflect on conservation as a discipline, you know, it's it's a reckoning of the discipline that it's been very white and it's been very patriarchal and it's been another form of, of land dispossession for Indigenous peoples. And I think there's a lot of awareness about that now, but there's a huge transformation that must occur across conservation organizations to realize that this idea of nature is an odd one and that people have been part of these places for millennia and that we really need to think about how to integrate people into conservation. The two must happen hand in hand. It sounds like, you know, when you're, you're day out in the field, let's say in these Gary Oak Meadows and um, islands, there's the traditional part of the science, which is collecting the data and getting down close to the soil and scooping things up into little bags and carrying them off in your boat. And there's that kind of embodied part of it. But from what you're describing, it sounds like you're also tracking absence or like invisibility, like you're... Also now, from what you've learned, you're looking at a landscape, you're like, well, what was here that I'm not able to document now in terms of this human 
ecosystem relationship in these eco-cultural landscapes, which is a term I really like that you just used. So it seems like part of the, the intuitive part of your work is also tracking the lost stewardship, which is a lot more difficult to quantify. I mean, is it even possible to include that in your, in your data sets? That's become a, a really key piece is trying to understand, you know, how the loss of that stewardship has impacted these places. And more importantly, how do we bring that back? So we're working with um, local nations to reassert rights and title on land, reassert those stewardship practices. And one of our projects is on this island called Susquenum or, or Halibut Island. And Susquenum's the Sinchothan name, one of the local languages in this region. And it translates to this idea of sitting out of the weather. And it's, it's this beautiful island, small island that just sits on Harrow Strait, so right on the border between British Columbia and Washington State. And this is an island that I used to go past as a child with my parents. It was always, there was something special about it. It was, it was owned privately for about 40 years. And then the, the owner passed away a few years ago. And when he passed away, the island was put up for sale. And I knew I had to find a way to protect this island. It was just in me. I was like, I need to figure this out. I knew that the island becoming a park, that was not the right direction for this place. The right direction was for this island to go back to its people, to the Wasanich people. And so through just a series of really beautiful events, we were able to find the money. A couple donated the funds to purchase the island and that island is now being handed back to the Wasanich people. And we're working with elders and youth on that island to bring back all those cultural practices. So the cultural burning, the tending of the meadows, all of these pieces, which are really what these landscapes are needing and are, are begging for, you know, so that's exciting. And, and it's exciting to think that in seven generations, there'll be children and grandchildren out there teaching these practices. I see that is one of the most exciting kind of stewardship um, directions for this region is getting people back onto the land to share this knowledge, which is still in these communities around how these places were tended for millennia. But wait, that's not the role of a data scientist to, to help purchase an island and bring people back to the land. I mean, that is such an inspiring message. It's like, you know, talk about driving decisions or solutions. You're like, okay, I, I, through collecting the data, I've realized that actually this land needs human touch and hands and hearts, and especially from the native people who were here before. So I'm going to expand my scope of action and start doing all of this other social work, which is re really fascinating. And I think an incredible um, provocation invitation for other scientists who are listening to this or who are out there to like, you know, also see what you're learning intuitively and otherwise, and then apply that. And I, I remember when I was reading your paper on the Fraser River, where you applied the priority threat management, you spoke in that paper about the cost effectiveness of governance or co-governance. And I don't know specifically if the example you gave about this island could be seen as co-governance or governance, but it definitely has to do with human beings relating to their, you know, place in some form and in terms of agreements and understandings. I thought that was so cool that you guys were able to quantify 
the role of governance and co-governance in conservation decisions and that it was estimated by the research that you did and validated by the research, not just as a nice idea, but actually proven with the numbers, that co-governance is a key component of success and actually only some species were estimated to reach like 60% probability of persistence because of co-governance. So you've also brought this much more active sensorial part of what you just did into the Fraser River work. Yeah, it is such a journey. You know, when I think about the rewards as a scientist, you know, you you you, you hope one day you're going to get a paper in science or nature, but really the biggest rewards that I think I've had in my career are stories like of Susquenum, of saving these places, which are going to bring joy and lift spirits in ways that I can't even imagine, but are so important for for communities to have a magical place that they can go and to teach and to learn together. The governance piece ties into this because the governance piece really, we can identify these most cost-effective actions, but if we don't have the right governance in place to support implementation, we're not going to see the success of those actions. And so we're able to quantify, you know, what actually that governance is worth in terms of increasing the success of actions. And and that's what we did in the Fraser, which is this incredibly um, complex situation with multiple layers of governance, but nobody really taking responsibility for biodiversity. And we need to remember that in Canada, we're sitting in this policy landscape where we have a federal species at risk law, species at risk, or we call it SARA. We have this law which is only enforceable on federal land. And if you look at the land base in British Columbia, that's 5% of the land base. So 95% of our land base has no species at risk legislation attached to it. All of the policies that we have that relate to species and ecosystems are really about facilitating resource extraction and sort of minimizing impact. But truly, they they are not about conserving species and ecosystems. So we don't have any governance from federal or the province or even municipalities which are set up to support thriving ecosystems. And We've also lost the historical governance, which was set up to support thriving ecosystems from the nations that that live there. And so we've been working with um, West Coast Environmental Law and a program that they developed called RELAW, so Reinvigorating Indigenous Law for Land and Water. And that is about understanding and documenting the laws and the principles and the policies of the nations which oversaw the salmon and the bears and the camas meadows um, for thousands of years and learning about those laws so that we can use those to actually help us steward these places better in the future. So this melding of, you know, taking the colonial law and the indigenous law and going, okay, we need a whole new framework of governance. What can we take from both of these and create some policies and legislation that speak for the river, that speak for the salmon, so that the salmon have a seat at the table, so that the southern resident whales have a seat at the table, 
so that the migratory birds have a seat at the table. And I think that is exciting because we're not going to get very far if we don't really seriously address this kind of governance vacuum that we have at the moment. I really want to actually dig into what you just shared. This idea of speaking on behalf of other species is, is at the core of a lot of why I'm doing this podcast. And I'm so curious about how you as a, I don't even want to call you a scientist for so many things, how you are able to speak with any conviction on behalf of other forms of life and how you yourself get close enough to feel like you even know what they want. Yeah, I feel like I'm just a student in this space. And all I can imagine is that every sentient being wants to thrive, <laughs> wants to thrive and and survive and reproduce and you know, breathe clean air and swim in clean water and be healthy. As a scientist, I can figure out what those things are and try to make decisions that are going to help bring about those conditions for these species to thrive. And I think if we had a salmon sitting at the decision table, we would all speak differently. We would all think differently. We would all make different decisions. Um, an elder kind of once in a meeting that I was in, you know, he brought a seat to the table and he said, this is the seat for the t salmon. And that seat, you know, sat there at the table empty. But that was really powerful to go, okay, so what would the salmon say here? There is a movement now to give rights to places, rights to rivers. And that is an important movement because it takes us outside of our very kind of human-centric space and it makes us consider other life forms and the rights of those other life forms to thrive and survive. Absolutely. I'm wondering if there's ever been an instance where you were getting close to a species or an organism or even a process, atmospheric process, whatever it may be, when you had to track and measure it so much that you kind of got to know it in a new way. Like, is there an example that you could share of a creature that you were able to begin seeing through its eyes or its behavior affected the way that you thought about it or its desires or its impulses? Oh, so many. <laughs> So many. Let's talk about a plant because, you know, we often think about animals as being the ones that have this, the sentience, but plants are so incredibly marvelous and herbaceous plants. So this plant called Camassia liclinii or great camas, this was a staple food source for um, Coast Salish peoples. And this plant grows in these meadows and it used to be hugely extensive across the region, more extensive than we really know. It's one of the questions that we're working on right now is to try to understand how extensive these meadows were to support these communities for so long and how much has been lost. But what I never realized was that the bulbs of this plant, or, the, or they're called corms, they lay down these growth rings just as a tree lays down growth rings. And so you can actually age some of these bulbs as you would a tree by taking a, a tiny core and uh, looking at it under a microscope and counting these growth rings. And I think what astounded me was that I realized that these plants, these were the old growth. These were, you know, these plants were more ancient than me, you know, and I just turned half a century not too long ago. 
<laughs> and so that was a, just such a startling thing to think. We acknowledge that trees can be ancient, but we very rarely think about that these little herbaceous plants can also be ancient and that the stories that this plant could tell and the different climates it's already lived through and the different languages that it's heard, you know, it, it's really so fascinating to me to try to imagine the world as this, you know, this plant that is sedentary, that's been growing on this rocky islet for, you know, over a century, maybe close to two, <laughs> and and how many seeds it's set. Um, I think it's just, it's really hard not to become um, incredibly inspired by the resilience of some of these plants and animals, you know, to continue to thrive and reproduce under such incredibly changing conditions. It's like an elder, right? You're in the presence of an elder. Um, and my greatest longing is that such a large proportion of the human population can come into contact with a small ground root plant and encounter the same fascination um, and reverence and respect uh, that you just did in this story and teaching about resilience. And uh, how do you bring that kind of care and sensitivity to people? Um, or how does one bring that kind of care and sensitivity to people so that when they're walking in a meadow, it's not just like, oh, like I heard you can eat that. It tastes good. It tastes better than bananas, apparently, <laughs> as you said before. But like, wow, like age and wisdom and resilience and elderhood. Um, and I ask that question because I think we fundamentally need to go there as a society. And as much as we need to prioritize threats and put money towards conserving nature, regenerating nature, we also need to create that culture of care. And the science can have us care more because the age can be fascinating. So are there ways that you've seen that capacity in people grow and develop and change? Yeah. I mean, the ultimate is to be able to walk with people through a meadow, you know, through a historic meadow that is teeming with wildflowers, that is teeming with the pollinators, that is one of those baselines. But of course, we can't take everybody to those places. They exist because they're hard to get to. And if we took everybody there, you know, the act of taking everyone there would end up destroying those places. So how do we inspire how do we give that people that same sense of being on this magical journey of discovery? There's lots of different mediums, you know, the, that we have the photos, the videos, working with the school. So right now we're about to put in this native food garden in my children's school just up the road. And so I've got outside, I've got flats of this great camas and chocolate lilies and fawn lilies and Indian celery and all of these delicious medicinals and food plants that they will have in their garden. And so instead of planting a garden of tulips and daffodils and all these crazy exotics, they can start to learn to love the, the native plants from their region and they can go home and say, you know, mom, instead of planting daffodils, why don't we plant some camas, you know? And so I think working with the little people is a really good place to start and uh, getting them inspired and getting their parents inspired because I think, you know, people only know what they know and anyone arriving in the Salish Sea, you know, within the last 30 years, they've never seen a wildflower meadow. They've never seen a Douglas fir forest with its full understory. And there's so few old growth 
trees, you know, it's all second and third forest. Nobody really knows what these old places look like. So it's how do we share that knowledge and the excitement about what we could potentially have if we stewarded these places in a, in a different way. And maybe it's also attaching it to opportunity for folks who, you know, not everyone has the money to put up a huge deer exposure or has the money to, you know, thin out their dug fir forest to give trees a bit more space. Or how do we provide the incentives for, for folks to to do these good things. And I think that's part of flipping these old ideas of conservation on its head where we're just going to we'll lock this area up and take away, you know, just people won't go there and that's nature. But all of our ecosystems actually need active management. They need people to help um, help them to recover. And that's going to involve some you know, some tree clearing or, or logging. It's going to involve um, maybe bringing back fire in places where we can. It's going to involve dealing with, an, you know, deer. It's going to involve hunting and dealing with deer hyperabundance, um, which is one of our greatest threats in this region, but also one of the most challenging to address because we love deer. You know, they're beautiful creatures, but they're also suffering because their populations are so high that they're loaded with parasites and they're getting different diseases. And we need to help them too. You know, if we're not going to reintroduce wolves and cougars into this region, then as the, the top predator, we have a role to play to, to help the deer as well. So there's, there's, it all comes back to that. How do we share the magic of these places with people and empower them to be great stewards on their lands and, and great, great citizens of these places? It sounds like the advice that you're giving, and there's a few different ones. One is, you know, wherever you're living, there will be a local school, there will be a local community garden patch and bring in species that tell a story and that have myth and tradition um, associated with them and then bring in the scientists who can tell you stories about that and engage people from all ages, kids and parents alike, in that growing of the Indian celery or all the other delightful names you listed that I can't repeat. And then there's also this aspect of becoming an active participant in the restoration itself. And that reminds me of um, someone else, a wonderful man we had on the podcast, who was sharing the example of the ecosystem restoration camps um, that are taking place around the world, where it's like, yeah, you can go on a beautiful hiking, camping adventure, and I love that more than your average person, but uh, also participating in the regeneration, participating in the prescribed burns or in the clearing or in the, you know, getting your hands up and getting involved is actually a really, really tangible way for people to participate um, and get close to an ecology. And it doesn't have to be traveling halfway across the world. Uh, I really like that advice. In the little time that we have left, I wanted to touch on the role of art and beauty in your work. And this brings me to a project that you're currently working on in the central coast of British Columbia with a few different First Nations. Uh, you and Bryony, who's another sweet, sweet friend and incredibly talented woman. And you're basically, uh, how would I say this? I don't want to get too technical, but you're working on this cumulative effects assessment, which is basically there's an ecosystem over time, all these million little harms happen to a land. And altogether, you know, each one looks quite innocent, but then when you accumulate them, when you put them together, 
you're like, oh my gosh, this whole region has been pummeled. And so that's kind of like the cumulative threat idea. And so you're working with your lab to assess that um, in these different regions. But what you're doing is you're also working with the indigenous elders and knowledge keepers and youth to visualize what it's like to have species that are in different stages of health. And I really am fascinated by this and, I, and I'll link it in the show notes when the art is ready, but you're using Bryony's incredible skills as an artist to visualize the interconnections of these species and also demonstrate the pre-existing local knowledge through art and through visualizations of what these different animals look like. And I, I want you to describe a few examples of that. I just want to say that what I love about this is I'm always asking this question, like, how can the data make us love more? How can the data make us care more? And I think it is through visualizations that it can come alive. So maybe you can speak to a specific species or example within that project and how it gets expressed through art and then the effect that that has for the indigenous people there, but also whoever will come into contact with that science. This has been a really exciting uh, and heartwarming project, largely driven by a, a, a team of, of women, of um, indigenous, um, European, and Chinese descent. And, you know, we've all uh, have a background somewhere, you know, from a, a colonial kind of university institution. But we've all come together to think about how do we do this cumulative effects assessment work in a better way? So, to date, it's been an assessment driven by a proponent, like a developer comes in and part of getting their green light to go ahead and build the mine or log the forest, they need to do this assessment. It's often been, you know, project specific. And so those two things alone are very problematic. Um, and it's it's never been really centered around Indigenous values. And so we really wanted to center this process, one, it being regional, looking across a, a broad range of the central coast of British Columbia, two, being um, embedded in the values and knowledge and, and sovereignty of the Indigenous people, and three, really taking to heart the law of reciprocity of, of it being a process that was non-extractive and that was what we call trauma-informed, you know, understanding that talking about these losses, these millions of losses since colonization, it's painful. It's incredibly painful and it's triggering and particularly for Indigenous people because it's so tightly coupled with all of the losses that they have endured um, since colonization. And so how do we have these conversations in a way that is not trauma-inducing, um, but in a way that is supportive and trauma-informed? Art has been a big part of that. Um, it's been a big part of being able to translate, you know, complex knowledge about how systems are connected and people and species are connected into visualizations and also how once you put those millions of, of cumulative impacts on top of the ecosystem, how those will change over time. So if we think about salmon, we have a, a spectrum from what a salmon looks like in an environment where it's thriving, it's got all of the resources it needs to spawn and reproduce. And, and so we have an image of these salmon all plump and ready to spawn, you know, underwater. And then, then above you can see a village site and the, you know, smokehouses for smoking the fish are full-fledged and there's people and on the shore and there's, there's a whole community, which 
is being supported by this abundance of salmon and there's bears. And then at the other end of the spectrum, you know, when salmon are completely depauperate, you know, there might be a river where there's no salmon or maybe there's one and you look above and the shores are are empty of people. And that's a, a visual that, you know, that the elders told us about, that the knowledge holders told us about, and we were able to translate that into pictures. And so then if we have these images of these species in these different states, we can then start to talk about scenarios. So, you know, a scenario might be, well, if we log this portion of your, allow this type of logging in your in the catchment, and we allow this type of ecotourism, and we allow this mine, how do you think salmon are going to be doing along this continuum from, you know, this thriving state to this not so thriving state. So it's it's a beautiful way to use art to help us to work with our knowledge holders in a way that is non-extractive and that is full of beauty and full of, you know, that reciprocity, honoring their time through the beauty of art. It's been, yeah, an incredibly exciting project and one that I think is a really great model for, you know, working with communities um, on these really challenging questions. And I'm sure it also illuminates different interconnections and biodiversity indicators that the science may not have. I remember reading in the paper something about, you know, if the bear or one of the birds has their chicks or their cubs nearby. So I think it's also a way of illustrating the qualitative aspects of biodiversity and and ecosystem health that might not make their way in otherwise. And therefore, it helps to paint a a much more complete picture of what an ecosystem is. Those little subtle things about, you know, the way a marbled burlet has its tail feathers when it dives for prey or the way a mother cub, you know, the fur around its neck looks like when it's in great condition. There's these really subtle elements which the knowledge holders tell us about and capturing that in art and giving that back to them it means that they felt heard. You know, they're seeing what they recognize in these images and that's part of that reciprocity. I'm so in love with your work and you're constantly pushing the envelope on how science should be done and understood and visualized and expressed. And your students are so lucky to have you and your kids are so lucky to have you. So really, thank you so much. (laughs) Thank you, Alexa. What a joy to have you in my life. And I can't wait to walk through these meadows with you soon. That was Tara Martin, head of the Martin Conservation Decisions Lab at UBC. I've linked to her papers in the show notes for the curious who would like to read firsthand how science and priority threat modeling look in action. Also on a side note, some of those papers have beautiful illustrations that I highly advise you to really take a look at. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast and stay tuned for a fresh Life Worlds episode coming out in two weeks' time where we will be talking about law and nature, looking at both indigenous law systems and the rights of nature. That's it for me today on Life Worlds. I'm Alexa Firmness, your host, and as always, I would love to hear from you. So please reach out to me on our website, lifeworld.earth, where you can also find all of the show notes and an open source library ranging on everything from ecology to technology and life at large. Subscribe to the email list and I'll see you back here soon.